Hello and welcome to Arts Tonight. On this evening's programme we travel to Manchester's landmark Whitworth Gallery where a major show from one of Britain's most acclaimed contemporary artists, Cornelia Parker, has relaunched the gallery following major renovations. The exhibition features Parker's signature 1991 piece, Cold Dark Matter, an exploded view alongside a range of new works. Before meeting the artist, I spoke with Mary Griffiths, curator of the show. She began by telling me about working with Cornelia Parker and why she's the perfect choice to relaunch this civic institution at the heart of Manchester. We've been working together now for about four years. She was invited by our director here, Maria Balshaw, to make an exhibition for the Whitworth. And we didn't say at all what that exhibition was to be or how big it was going to be. So for those four years, what I've been doing is introducing her to scientists within the university, and they've just been opening up their doors, making their research possible so that she can see those kinds of ideas. This is what she wanted to do in Manchester, and begin to see if any of those are possible for work she might make. So that's what's been the great thing about working with her. Then from that, that's bounced back possibilities that she's then run with and made extraordinary works of art out of. What links her work to the work of William Blake, who's so well represented here in the Whitworth? Yeah, now that all happened very nicely. She had already made a group of works called Pavement Cracks in 2012. And one of those works is called Bunhill Fields. It's Blackpath Bunhill Fields. Bunhill Fields being a nonconformist graveyard in London. Blake and all of his family are in that ground. All of the gravestones have gone, but the pavement still survives. Cornelia cast the cracks in the pavement and then had that cast into bronze. And it's the casting of the pavement is all the business to do with those little cracks that we might step over and ignore. And there what she's done is bring it to the fore. So there's that iconic name of William Blake. She doesn't make some grand work of art out of it. She picks the muck out of the spaces between the, the slabs of stone where he's buried and then casts it into bronze. So you can see the overlooked goes into the iconic form of bronze. She had also cast in type of plastic a pavement in Jerusalem where she had gone to make an exhibition. So you can see straight away what we've got is William Blake and we've now got Jerusalem. So the Whitworth really wanted to make that work possible and we got some money from the Henry Moore Foundation, put some of our own money in and also some benefactors, some patrons put some money into that. So we were able to cast that down in a foundry in London. And then... She was very interested in graphene, which is this revolutionary material that's been discovered in, by scientists in Manchester. So the scientists Andre Geim and Kostya Novoselov. What Cornelia asked Kostya was, could you make graphene out of an old master drawing? And he's up for these games as well. And he said, yes, I can. I think I, I, think I would be able to. So it was my job then to find from the Whitworth collection a drawing by William Blake that would have enough graphite on it for him to take a microscopic sample of graphite. My director was happy with this, and we had a a paper conservator on hand as well. And this is the kind of thing paper conservators do all the time. And I had to find one that was pure pencil, because if it's got any watercolour over it, it seals it, you can't take a sample off. So from quite a slight drawing, Tyriel denouncing his sons and daughters, a sketch for that work, Costa was able to take a piece of graphite off that, took it away, 
and then made Blake graphene in the laboratory. And then it was over to Cornelia then. OK, we've made you Blake graphene. What are you going to do with it? What, are you, what work of art are you going to make? Now, she's made several meteorite landings in the past where she sends ground meteorite up into the atmosphere with um, fireworks. And that's what she wanted to do with the Blake graphene. So we've got this complicated thing with Blake graphene and it's and the firework display was choreographed around the idea of the Ancient of Days, Blake's Ancient of Days, which we have here in the Whitworth collection. And there we've got, you know, back to Blake, Bunhill Fields and Jerusalem. So a nice tying together of all of those aspects to do with Blake. So there was this extraordinary fireworks display to, yes. to mark the reopening of the renewed Whitworth and that particular piece, uh, Blake's Ancient of Days, um, remind us of, of its place, if you like, within both the history of, of British art and in particular its location here. Blake's Ancient of Days was given to the Whitworth by John Edward Taylor, who was one of the founders of the Manchester Guardian. And he gave an awful lot of watercolours to the Whitworth, and that's one of the most iconic. It's on display at the moment in a salon-style hang at the Whitworth, which is alongside a salon-style hang of Cornelia's own works. Blake made that work... I think there are about eight versions of it. And it starts off as an etching that he makes, and then he hand-coloured them. The Whitworth is, in, is a particularly intense and beautiful version of that. And I would say this, but it, it is the best version of the Ancient of Days. And it's, a, it's that kind of picture, as soon as people would see it, they'd recognise it straight away, where a godlike figure is um, crouching over the world with compasses measuring the firmament or the earth. You talk about four categories of materials that Parker uses and draws on. This is in, in, in your essay in, in the book that accompanies the exhibition. And you talk about the elemental, the synthetic, uh, the organic and the culturally manufactured. And then she applies this rigorous force to achieve, I suppose, a kind of deep transformation. Uh, if we take the gun of the bullet as two of the objects she uses over and over and returns to as a theme, in a sense, what does she do? with those iconic objects and what sort of transformation takes place? The most important thing that she would say she does now is as little as possible. She's been working with bullets for many years now and she realised that, of course, she could... So much of her practice is based on the idea of drawing, but she doesn't actually draw pictures with a pencil. She's always drawing materials out. And she has a person, she has a gunsmith down in Shoreditch who is able to supply her with wire that's actually drawn out of bullets. So there you have that little play on the word drawing. Though the way in which she titles works and plays on words is very, very important. So she has a supply of drawn wire from bullets that she'll make many works out of. And that moment of transforming a piece of material made out of lead and some other metals that will actually harm somebody and transforming it into a thing that's a work of art and is to do about finding the world interesting and finding you know, and, and valuing human beings is that transformative moment where her work resides. She's also made many works to do with guns. She made a great work to do with them from the, when she was working at the Colt 45 factory in Texas 
several years ago, but most recently with us here at the Whitworth, she wanted me to get in contact with the local constabulary and get some guns for it. And this, these are the great little adventures you go on. So we spoke to the, the, an armourer at Greater Manchester Police and they were able to supply us with a sawn-off shotgun and a small handgun as well. So these were handed over to us with certificates to say that they were going to be decommissioned, but they were decommissioned right in front of us. So we started off with a functioning gun, which we didn't, we weren't using, of course. And then right in front of us, the police destroyed them so that we had the evidence that they couldn't be used anymore. One of them, the sawn-off shotgun, was actually cut up into bits that are about an inch and a half long by a policeman with an angle grinder, these sparks flying. And then what we ended up with was a bag of bits that was a gun, that are then handed over to Cornelia and she's to make the work out of. So she ponders over those things for, for several weeks. She has them in her studio and she thinks about them and how they can be, what they can be, become. A very important phrase for her is truth to materials. And with the sawn-up, sawn-off shotgun, she hasn't done anything to it except identify it as a work of art. So I sent her an email saying, here's the photographs of the sawn-up, sawn-off shotgun. And that became the title, because that's exactly what it is. But, of course, what it is is a gun that can't function, it can't do that thing anymore, and it can be gazed upon and people will think about its nature as an item that was involved in criminal activity here in Manchester and is now gazed upon through a perspex case as a work of art. It's, it's almost like a novel way of decommissioning arms, actually. But, uh, the, the, the truth to materials phrase, of course, echoes William Morris and subsequent artists then. And, and Cornelia Parker, in a sense, seems to be almost in a direct line from some of those artists who were deeply concerned with materiality and, and how things were made. And sometimes, yes, transformed in a way that at least made us look at them in a different way that her entire practice is examining that world that we're within and the objects that were within it and finding something, finding the work of art in all of those objects. She's out by herself as an artist in some ways. She's an extraordinary, extraordinary artist who's not been part of that fashionable thing, the group of artists in the 1980s and the 1990s, but has carried on making work with much admiration internationally. And this is the moment, I think this is her moment, where she's really going to come even more to the fore with bold works, really, and really insightful works that carry on that tradition that she, she identified so clearly with Cold Dark Matter in 1991, which is a long time ago now, and she's been making work consistently that is building to this moment. This is the biggest exhibition that she's had in, in the UK, certainly, and internationally, probably. And that work coming together, people can really see the strength of that work that's in Cornelia's oeuvre. As an artist yourself, do you regard her as primarily as a sculptor or an installation artist or do any of those categories matter a whit is it about the art yeah i think it's about the art because i could say that she draws and she makes sculpture that she's installation it's purely to do with how she examines that material you're, I suppose, in a way, almost halfway through an engagement with her here in Manchester. I mean, they, they, we, we have this point, but I think her work here and the connection to Manchester University will, will continue uh, and more work will, will come out of it. But one thing also that strikes me about her work is that there's a lovely kind of subtle sense of humour at play in so much of it. Uh, just watching people looking at the work uh, was, was very interesting because I think, I think a lot of people get that very quickly. 
I think she's completely aware of that. She's she's very light-hearted, very, very serious person, but it's very light-hearted. Her greatest talent, I think, is for identifying how a material might be used and also how to have that immediate impact upon somebody and to enter into either amusing them or having that impact emotionally upon them with that work of ours, yes. The reimagined Whitworth here, uh, the Whitworth, of course, a, a very important part of, of Manchester and, and the cultural and artistic scene in Manchester. And Joseph Whitworth himself, a, a very interesting figure, and as was a, an indirect link to Cornelia Parker in that he, he, he invented a rifle along the way. He did. I have to admit, Joseph Whitworth was an armourer. Yeah. So he he did. The Whitworth rifle was... He invented rifling and gun barrels. And if you put rifling into a gun barrel, it really it twists the bullet as it goes down and it gives it much greater accuracy. So that revolutionised weaponry. Whitworth himself did the great Whitworth rifle, which Queen Victoria once fired. And um, it was all set up on a on a tripod and she... She hit the target beautifully. So there is a really great connection between Cornelia and Sir Joseph Whitworth. He also standardised screw threads and all of that idea of standardisation and taking something that's a standard style and making something new out of it is very important to her as well. Because there's a really strong sense of precision in her work as well. She'll have many works of art on the go at one time and they'll all be moving towards that moment that when she identifies the precise moment when, yes, this is that time for that work of art to really come to the fore. The Whitworth also then in, in relation to the community. I mean, we're, we're very close to Mossside uh, where many Irish immigrants uh, settled over, over generations. I know it's probably primarily Somalian now, but uh, there are the shifts in demographics. Uh, how important is it within the community and, and, and this particular area? Very important within, within the community. So there's the community of the university and, as you say, us as our neighbours in Mossside and Hume and in Rushholme. The, the, the way that the new, the, the new building has been designed is it's as though it's got arms now that throw themselves open to the park and to allow all of our neighbours to just come straight in. It's very, very important to us that everybody around here knows that this gallery is for them. And is she in any way an inspiration for, for your own artwork? She is extraordinarily. She's a very, very generous artist. The way in which she thinks about art and examines it has been an inspiration and also a great lesson, thinking, ah, yes, the the kind of single-mindedness and careful thought that's required. And also she curated a room at the Royal Academy, a black-and-white room. She invited me to be in that, so so I was in that exhibition with her. And I'm working on a big wall drawing at the moment, and she's given me some really good advice about that. So she's a great inspiration. Will you continue to work with Cornelia Parker over the over the next few years? Yeah, that's me. I'm doing that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Mary Griffiths, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Cornelia Parker, because many of our, our listeners in Ireland may not be yet familiar with your work, would you tell us a little bit ab- about your own family background and maybe some of the impulses that have gone into 
making you the artist that you are? Well, I'm from rural Cheshire, South Cheshire, and I spent my childhood on a small holding. So it's part of the Duchy of Lancaster estate. So my father was a tenant farmer, really, and he worked on the estate and he, he had his few acres and a few, you know, few bits of livestock, you know, cows and pigs. Uh, and he used to scythe the hay by hand and lay hedges and plant lots of stuff and, and vegetables, which we sold in a farm shop. So I spent my childhood as the surrogate's son, really, because he had three daughters, and I, <laughs> I was the second one. So he said, right, <laughs> this one's a boy. <laughs> so I got, you know, wheelbarrows and wellies and things for my birthday and Christmas presents rather than dolls. So I was just the nominated son. So I, was, I seemed to be reasonably happy about that. You know, I liked being physical and but I ended up doing an awful lot of repetitive tasks you know like milking cows by hand mucking out pig sheds tying up thousands of tomato plants planting things by hand scything hay raking the hay over so just lots of very repetitive ritual ritualistic things but it wasn't very good for my education you know I ended up not doing a lot of homework uh, but my father had an injury and he had to retire um, quite young and so we at 15 I moved we moved into a small town so then I was uh, I think had a bit more time um, to, to, to concentrate on what it was I was, I was interested in and art was one of the things I was and, and, and English art and English were my subjects and I kind of had this developing interest in art and I had this great art teachers at my school who took a group of students to London for a week when I was 15 and that was huge for me because I'd never been to a museum or you know I really hadn't had you know there'd been no hardly any culture at home not visual culture that was great that just blew my mind after a week of <laughs> going around all these museums and galleries in London I was going to be an artist so that was where where I it sort of kindled my interest and then you know, I went to a grammar school. Art wasn't really considered a big academic subject. You know, everybody was dissuaded, but I think they felt I wasn't particularly academic, so perhaps, you know, one or two sacrificial lambs could be allowed to go off to art school. So um, I was the first person to go to art school from the school and did my foundation in Cheltenham in Gloucestershire, only because it, they did a textiles and fashion course there, and I wanted to try that out as well. I wasn't that convinced I, I'd be good enough to be an artist. Um, and then I no art school would take me at that point because I was, you know, there wasn't showing enough promise. But I got in on last pool choice at Wolverhampton Poly. I thought, Wolverhampton, God, this is really, you know, brutal city after living in the country. And But I loved it. I had a really great time there and I blossomed there. And I blossomed particularly when I realised I wasn't a painter. <laughs> Halfway through my degree, I was busy trying to paint you know, light coming in through a window and trying to create illusion on a flat canvas. And I, and I just thought, well, I don't really... I don't like doing things like that. I want to, to, to have the real light coming through the real window. I wanted to use real materials. I wanted... Um, so I started off making sculpture, and that was a great... The moment when I, I crossed that Rubicon, it, I suddenly felt like I, you know, had come home, that I, I could felt much more comfortable, and things flowed from there. And in retrospect, do you feel that those years through childhood and youth of the repetitious work uh, of making the hay, of saving hay, of planting potatoes, of doing all these things, and that physical hands-on work helped to inform that your engagement with the material and that desire to, to make in art. I think perhaps the reason I didn't study sculpture straight away was that my knowledge, which was very shallow knowledge at that point, uh, of sculpture was everything, you know, 
arm plinths, sort of lumps, you know, lots of skill um, and lots of hard chipping away at hard materials. And it just didn't feel like the way I felt about the world. I wanted to make something much more ephemeral and more elusive and more intangible. Um, but then when I, you know, through being at college, I learned about the Art of Povera uh, movement in Italy in the 60s and about people like Yves Klein and uh, Pierre Manzoni and, uh, you know, just people working with br- the idea of breath or, you know, throwing away things into rivers as an artwork and, uh, you know, or jumping out of a window. <laughs> and I thought, oh, this is much more interesting. And um, so I, I sort of realised sculpture could be a possibility. But I think perhaps... Some of the breakthroughs were made when I left art school. I got a, an artist in residence in Cheshire, not far from where I grew up, at this college where they did a, a joint honours degree in uh, creative arts so that people could do sculpture and dance or they could do writing and singing. Or, you know, they, they, could, they could just cross-pollinate. And so some of the students were a really interesting bunch, you know, pretty maverick bunch. And I kind of happily sort of started doing, helping with choreography and making sets and, you know, just uh, uh, sculptures to be worn, you know, all kinds of, you know, I remember doing a set for Waiting for Cotto. <laughs> Beckett I love still. You know, it, for me it was quite a wonderful time. Uh, and a lot of, I've still got a lot of friends from those days. I've got quite a pluralistic, perhaps almost performative approach to sculpture that perhaps I wouldn't have had if I hadn't done that creative, you know, been that artist in residence. And I was only 21, so, <laughs> you know, still pretty impressionable. That was quite pivotal, I think. The pivotal as well, and, and thinking about categories, I mean, they, they, so often there are very clear distinctions made between, for instance, art and science. And you seem to be one of the people who is determined to uh, to cross these divides and to break down those those barriers. And I suppose the, the work you've been making here in Manchester and in conjunction with some of the people in Manchester University is a very good example of that. Of And you, you've cited Leonardo, for instance, you know, and, and uh, his drawing the first helicopter as somebody a polymath who wasn't restricted by by categories i presume that you feel very strongly that people shouldn't be restricted in that way i think when we're a child we're not really we're we're all very creative and we're you know we're wonderfully musical we're wonderfully visual you know we we're, we're natural poets we're natural everything and so as we get older we just kind of get teased out by society into specialisms and that's kind of doesn't feel very comfortable I mean I had terrible science teachers at school so I never got a a, a passion for science but if I'd had brilliant science teachers perhaps I'd you know done that sometimes it's to do with inspirational teachers and I've got to love and I read a lot about science now um, just through general interest I mean more than I read about art I make art and I go and look at art but I don't know if I have to read about it not necessarily got my finger on the pulse about what's happening all the time but science I'm much more on top of just because it influences all so much so when I came to do this show here I think I've got this almost encyclopedic you know I'm a very curious person and I haven't got you know I'm, I'm always like like a grasshopper who jumps around you know I've got tension deficit disorder most probably and so uh, the idea of having lots of different people who I can talk to and, and try and understand things I don't understand the work is just a kind of way of understanding things I suppose so so I'm making things it's almost like trying to make a visual model of something to see if it works or not doesn't work perhaps philosophically or you know emotionally um, but it's but scientists are, are you know have a different view of things and they're quite pragmatic but they have have a very romantic side to them too through their titles and the way they describe what they do 
you know, I did a science um, residency at the, the Science Museum in London in 1999 and spent several months. And I realised that I just spent most of the time talking. And I realised a lot of what I do is quite oral and it's about exchange of ideas. And, and I get much more inspired in conversation than I do if I was sat in a studio, drew on some technique that I had. I'm not that kind of uh, person in a way. I suppose the techniques I learned as a child were very, you know, they weren't useful for much else, but I I was doing lots of different things all the time, you know, so shoveling manure is not necessarily a very, you know, I couldn't see how it could fit in with my work very much. Tying up tomato plants, perhaps, because I did a lot of suspended work. So I think, yeah, no, I'm, I'm just curious, I suppose, and I don't really worry too much about whether it's art or not. I've long given up worrying about what, what my practice is. I always feel like I'm reinventing the wheel every time I make a piece of work, just because I've got such a bad memory. <laughs> I must be making the same work over and over, but in different ways, just because I always feel that the unconscious knows much more than the conscious. So I'm trying to tap into something I don't know rather than what I do know. So I don't want to spend a lifetime perfecting a technique or a style, although I, you know, some of the things are more obsessive than others, and therefore that you know, they quite, can be quite recognisable. So I'm, I'm very often drawn back to the same themes. But I'm, I just feel like you've only got one life. Why not explore as much as you can? Working with graphene, with yes. this extraordinary new material that, that seems to have the potential to revolutionise so much, must have been really, really exciting. I mean, I've also read that you've said that, you know, with, with graphene, who needs fracking? You know, so that it, the potential to transform energy and how we source energy and use it is, is, is contained. Again, as you talk about in, in, in the invisible world around us. I mean, tell me a little bit about, about that engagement with graphene and, and, and what you see as its potential. Well, I mean, when I first read about it, I was excited, A, because it was made of graphite, so it's a drawing material, and a lot of my work has links to drawing. And I was also reading about all kinds of new energy, because I'm very concerned about the planet having a 13-year-old daughter who wants to have a future. So, so I was reading about all kinds of new materials. Because the atom was split in Manchester, and this is, you know, graphene is working on almost like on a quantum level. It's on a very microscopic level, but its potential is huge. It's almost like a new paradigm, energy Um, releasing paradigm we in this country should be really hot housing it we should be thinking it's almost like a manhattan project because people all over the world are fighting over patents for it and and it will revolution everything we do we won't have to to mine for for oil or gas because it will be it'll it'll allow energy to be created very quickly from solar and it's it's almost there but it there's not enough funding all those subsidies that go to fossil fuels should go towards bringing on those new materials it can revolutionize batteries for example and allow you to um, store energy from the sun and release it when you want to Um, it has this great potential as a super capacitator and it's the hardest material it's you know you can grow it (laughs) i mean it's just mind-blowing i mean it's potential you need we need to bring it on quickly because we haven't got time for the five years of fracking or 10 years destroying everything and poisoning our water levels when we've got this thing here in manchester you know waiting to be developed your your work with graphene also involved an engagement with william blake uh, an artist who's (laughs) clearly an inspirational force for you And, and in a way you know that that engagement led then to almost something of the spirit of blake being released into the skies here in in February through a fireworks display that that comes from your engagement with with graphene and and with here with with the Whitworth. I mean, what is it about William Blake in particular that is a draw for you? I mean, is it 
it's that visionary aspect of of his of his art of his writing what he, what he seemed to see I think it's almost more his writing than his art for me you know I, I love his poetry and and you know the, the the song Jerusalem has become quite almost a jingoistic anthem for us but you know he had he was a visionary and he heard voices and and he was very tempestuous I mean I think the, the idea of nature and the elements was something he wrote beautifully about and yet his form was quite small and you know self-contained and then Manchester had this quite wonderful you know collection of drawings by Blake amongst you know other artists but Blake somehow and I spent some time three years ago in Jerusalem and in the West Bank and in Palestine and there's a lot of trouble there as you all know and we it's a very conflicted situation and and this idea of the idealization of Jerusalem you know that this what what Blake was talking about building it on you know satanic mills uh, and England's green and pleasant lands in a way I like that you know this is a difficult place this is now there's there's so much injustice going on there and there's so much conflict and you know spending a lot of time there and making work there I really thought I wanted a piece of bring a piece of Jerusalem back with me and I cast the cracks in the street in in East Jerusalem which is occupied territory and using cold cure rubber so it it's a liquid and I'd taken it as extra baggage in my suitcase through Tel Aviv airport because nobody seemed to prepare to receive it at the other end so I thought well I'll just take it and uh, then I at night with with help I um, mixed the two um, rubbers together and then I poured it into the cracks in this street this marble street which is an old street and then when it was dry I picked it out and rolled it up and put it in my suitcase and brought it back to Britain and then made it into a bronze which is in this show so this is the first, this is the places I had in mind for it. So this, so bringing back the real Jerusalem to the site of the Satanic Mills, which Manchester was. I mean, sadly, Manchester is where the Industrial Revolution started, and perhaps some of our woes that we have in terms of the climate started too. You know, we have a big part to play in all that. And then the idea of graphene possibly being a saviour, possibly being an antidote to to the fossil fuel industry and, and to the industrial revolution. It could be the beginning of a whole new revolution. And so I met Kostya Novoselov, who's one of the, the, the people who identified and, and created graphene. And I asked him if he could make graphene from old master drawings, you know, the graphite. And he, his face lit up and he said, ooh, yes, you know, because he loves art. <laughs> and he liked the excuse to be able to look from a microscope at drawings in the Whitworth collection and see if he could see any potential graphene there. So we we, you know, we had a, a route through all the drawings and, and we got some from Picasso and Constable and Turner. We also got some from Ernest Rutherford, the guy who split the atom, from his signature because he, he signed it in pencil. So we, so me and Costume Mike worked together on that. <laughs> so, so anyway, so I said to Costume, now we've I got this graphene. He made some graphene. He said, I said, well, what can we use it for? Is it, can it be a catalyst or a switch or a because I knew they could be used in transistors. And he said, yes, you know. I said, well, what would activate it? What would activate, you know, a switch made of graphene? He said, well, even a breath would do it because it's very sensitive. And it's. And I said, ooh, <laughs> thinking about Manzoni and breath of an artist. I thought, well, the breath of a physicist might be really nice. So I said, could you breathe on it, you know, to, to switch? Uh, to, well, and the thing I wanted them to switch on was, or to set off was a firework display. And they, they are meteor showers. So I put a meteorite in the firework display as a, a grind it up into 
iron filings, which is what a lot of the meteorites are made off is iron, meteoric iron. And I've done it with moon rock as well, so I've had moon landings. But this one wasn't going to be a moon landing. I got an, an iron meteorite from America, from the big crater in Colorado. So it was very old iron, meteoric iron. And Blake was talking about America, a prophecy, you know, and so there's, there's this nice link. Um, so I, and Europe, a prophecy. So there's this very prophetic and... But I like this idea of, of Kostya being a physicist, being able to control the elements. You know, he can control this meteoric landing. So his breath triggered this fireworks display, which was also a Blakean fireworks display. So it was based on the ancient days, which is here in the collection. So it, it all came full circle. You know, the, the street I'd bought back from Jerusalem, the real Jerusalem, and then Blake's Jerusalem, and then Kostya being the new um, visionary and the new puppet master. <laughs> so he got to breathe on Blake. So the, the breath of the, the Nobel physicist and the, the eye of the artist conjured that, that spirit of Blake again in the, in the Manchester skies in 2015. I love that idea. Um, another very striking piece that, that you made in Bethlehem is uh, with links to Jerusalem is made in Bethlehem, this video piece uh, with a, oh, yes. a father and son, Palestinian father and son, who are making something again deeply iconic within Christianity. Tell me about that father and son and your encounter with them. Well, um, my first time in Jerusalem was around Easter time. Outside all the shops are piles, baskets of crowns of fawns made out of real fawns. And it was there for the pilgrims who were coming. And I was, I'm a lapsed Catholic. You know, I saw these, you know, immediately mainlining this you know, symbolism. And I was thinking, oh, well, who makes these? You know, it took me back to my childhood from laying hedges and stringing up tomato, tomatoes and all the rest of it. So I thought, mm, this is something I could, I'd like to see made. So I tracked down a workshop in Bethlehem where this... Uh, Muhammad and his son created these crowns of fawns. And this, they sat in this quite dark room with hundreds of thousands of these crowns of fawns, which look like the barbed wire you see all over the West Bank. So uh, they agreed to be interviewed, and I had an interpreter because um, I couldn't speak Arabic. So they were making their crowns of fawns, and, and Muhammad was probably in his early 60s. And so I asked him how long he'd been making crowns of fawns, and he said 33 years, which <laughs> the same length of time that you know age Jesus was when he was crucified. So, And then I just wanted to know what they thought about while they were making the crowns. I didn't want to make a polemical piece, but so I just thought, well, I'd just like to know what they'd think about because it represented hundreds of hours. Of, of making. Mama um, said, well, and he started off at first saying, well, I, you know, I, I think about Palestine and I think, you know, about the situation here and freedom and dignity and wanting dignity for our people. And, and I love there to be an airport in Jerusalem so we don't have to go, well, he can't go through Tel Aviv, but to, 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 to you know, to have freedom, I suppose. And so he went into this very long monologue which was very moving about, you know, the dignity of his, um, for his um, brothers, without, you know, it being very didactic or incriminating or, you know, um, he, he didn't pour um, hate on anybody. But, you know, you, the irony of, of an occupied Muslim area in Bethlehem by the Jewish faith and making Christian iconography, it just seemed, you know, unbelievable, really. So, and then I asked his son the same question. So I said, what do you think of? And he said, well, not much. I just think how many I can make, you know, how many. He'd only known that life. He just shrugged and just, I just think about how many I can make. It's an extraordinary image that seems to contain so much of, of the complexity and conflict at the, at the heart of, of Israel and, and Palestine and all of those conflicted 
pulses with it there. But but it's, it comes back to your ability, it strikes me, your ability to see and to look beyond, to ask, where is this made? Where does it come from? You know, what's the source? And look behind. It's my nosiness. <laughs> but also, I'm quite, I don't know why, but I'm very drawn to the cliché. I think everybody is, you know, that I get drawn to things that are famous landmarks like Niagara Falls or Everest, or which I've made works alluding to, or um, Statue of Liberty, you know, famous monuments, or the Brontes or uh, Einstein. Or So in a way, you know, for me, the, the Crown of Thorns was something part of my childhood and um, in more ways than one because of you know the farming that somehow I hone in on these things but then I want to find the opposite I mean I want to find the underbelly of it because I can think that these things are familiar to everyone and they mean things to a lot of people so it's almost like I want to sort of get beyond the cliche I'm trying to find I always think the unconscious knows a lot more than the conscious so I I'm trying to find the unconscious of that particular object so the object somehow becomes a metaphor or stands in for something else and words and the naming of things seems to be important to you. You know, the names that you you give to or draw from your artworks. And poetry would seem to be something of an inspiration to come to being explores something of, of all of this in his story in the book that accompanies this exhibition, a piece called Everything is Susceptible, uh, which is very evocative, <laughs> a rather wonderful piece. Uh, how did you how did you come to know Colm? Oh, well, I just love his writing, so I read a lot of his books. And he'd had some links with Manchester, so he used to teach here. And we were trying to work out who to ask, and I always wanted to work with a writer. Um, and I, I just loved his attention to detail, really, you know, that he will take something quite mundane and he will get underneath that mundanity and, and find something quite rich. And so I, well, I just never dreamt that he would say yes. <laughs> but I went to Dublin and met him, and he was very warm and receptive and loves art, so he has great knowledge about art. And then when he delivered this story, <laughs> I thought he would just write an oblique story, something that wasn't to do with me at all. But I realised that it was kind of half me and perhaps half him, you know, that it was, a, you know, his experiences. And so that was quite wonderful to read, although it was a bit strange because some of the, some of the books I'm reading I've never read and, and some of the bits of music I'm listening to I haven't, you know, listened to. I did manage to get him to change the, the opening bit where I think he had Brahms and I said, could it be Bach? Because <laughs> I know I've listened to a lot of Bach. And um, there's a musician friend of mine, that, uh, Jocelyn Pook, a great composer, actually, who I lived with for three years. She said, oh, no, you wouldn't be listening to Brahms. <laughs> but I knew it wasn't really a portrait for me. It was, it was just a fictional character. But, um, but uh, no, it was a wonderful addition. So, in a sense, the artist in the story is you, and it's also a transformed you. Yes. It's, 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 it's another. I'm susceptible in the, the story. <laughs> I'm, being, I'm, I'm a material that he's run with, and, and uh, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm in flux. Um, I suppose another director, indirect Irish link. Uh, I think your American husband has has an Irish background. Oh, he does. Yes, um, his mother was called uh, Moriarty, and she's from a redhead Irish lot that went over to Texas many years ago. And all bricklayers, I think. <laughs> and Jeff, my husband, you know, he's redhead, and my daughter's redhead. So, you know, she looks very Irish. <laughs> and and your daughter 
Lily, I think, uh, features in some of the work here in the Whitworth. I mean, there's a, that, those lovely texts, uh, oh, yeah. those handwritten texts <laughs> that I, I, are her writing. Yes, I mean, there were a few years ago now, I think she was seven or eight, and I made these cut-ups out of, out of newspaper headlines. It was called World on the Brink of Tricky Small Print or Twelve Killed by Icicles, <laughs> which was just a straight headline. But somehow I knew the, what was in the news now was going to affect her in later life. You know, so that somehow her innocent hand writing these words like consequences, for example, you know, which is something that a six or eight year old wouldn't write, and me trying to explain to her what consequences meant. So, um, so it was quite a nice collaboration. And she came up to see the show last week actually for the first time. And I was saying, What, what did you like the most out of the show? And she says, Well, I did like those drawings that I did <laughs> for you, mum. <laughs> and she liked my drawings and blood, she liked them as well. Those are quite remarkable, the self-portraits uh, with blood and pencil, you know, you as a square, you as a circle, the various shapes. Uh, why did you want to literally draw on and draw with your own, with your own blood? I think, there was, you know, the, in the show there was my blown-up garden shed and then there's another companion piece, which is the poppy room. You know, I wouldn't want to use anybody else's blood, but I felt, you know, I'd done these drawings using ex- drawn-out bullets and, and they're in the show. I think there was a lot of stuff there that was was a making quite um, dangerous things into something that's been tamed or benign or you know controlling it and, uh, and the idea of your bodily fluid you know your blood um, you know you usually only see your blood when you cut your finger or uh, give blood or whatever and I like the idea of, of trying to control the blood so the idea of using it as a, a pigment um, to make a near a perfect circle as I could make or, or, or a triangle all the modernist symbols in a way that the, the irony of that trying to to push around this thing that's all to do with emotion and blood and guts and gore but it's suddenly it becomes these more cold calculated shapes. I don't bring myself into the work so overtly normally, but you know the only other self-portrait I've done is me holding the budget bag, <laughs> which I managed to borrow. <laughs> um, so it's called self-portrait with budget bag. You're, I suppose, about halfway through an engagement here uh, in Manchester University, a professorship, and a, a very direct involvement with, I suppose, with the life, the, the cultural life of both the university and, in a broader sense, the city. And I, I just wonder, I mean, it, it seems to me that, that Manchester at the moment and, and the north of England has a cultural vitality that, that's very striking. There seems to be quite a lot happening, I and mean, the Whitworth as part of it here. I wonder what that means to you, and also what, if you have any idea yet of the sorts of projects that you'd like to develop over the next few years? <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I, I Somehow because Manchester was the place where the Industrial Revolution happened, I, I, I don't know, I, I really like the idea of it being the place where the antidote, you know, if it was a poison, it could be the antidote to, to what's happening. And there's a huge student group here, and they're very politically engaged, whereas the university could be more politically engaged. I think they could, they should be leading the way, I think, on new materials and, and graphene and, and, and making Britain with all its great potential, great designers, great architects. Um, you know, the creative industry is huge in this country. You know, the science we have here is fantastic. You know, we really should be bringing all that together and and putting ourselves back on the map. I do think we should be leading the new green revolution, a new industrial revolution. And I think I'm going to be very vocal 
while I'm here. I mean, I might, be, I might end up being with the students <laughs> doing sit-ins. <laughs> Perhaps they'll be very upset that I've become a professor here because I've already been talking to the Vice-Chancellor about divesting from fossil fuels. You know, but I think they've got a new wing that's been um, sponsored by BP because they're trying to train up all their new scientists to, to find new oil fields, which, if they do, we're stuffed. Did, did that, I suppose, change with motherhood uh, in any way change the nature of your work or bolster something in it or or have any any particular impact um i think i think because i spent my whole childhood working really hard <laughs> and that i think perhaps i chose to make art because it was more like play i thought it was it's also hard work too i mean i'm having my childhood for the first time really through my daughter so i'm we're having spending a lot of time playing um so that's been great but also i've got I perhaps got a lot more political or my politics has become a bit more conscious um, because I realise she's the world she's growing up in is not going to be very great, not as good as the the world I grew up in. So I'm kind of sort of being as vocal as I can on on that. Although I'm not necessarily trying to make overtly political work, but I, I do think being an artist is a, a political act and and it's an important. We are free radicals. We you can't plan what we're going to do, but we can be more vocal because we're not necessarily parts of institutions. Okay, I'm now part of an institution for three years, but I'm. I think the nature of my residence is, is that I'm going to treat it as a, a, a me, me being a free radical in the machine. One of, as was your most uh, celebrated piece, Cold Dark Matter, The Exploded View, uh, this garden shed, exploded garden shed that, that's held in, in air as this explosive thing. I remember reading that you said you became aware of the notion and power of explosions through living in London in the 80s and 90s when the threat of IRA bombs was a very real one. I wondered, looking back, what that was like, that, that feeling of the potential for invisible violence around. Yes, I think that the, the explosion is something we're all very familiar with, but not first-hand, usually, luckily. You know, we're bombarded with images of it all the time. Now it seems to be even more so. You know, my daughter at 13 is saying, oh, there's always so much, so many explosions going off and, you know, they're happening in other countries. But when I was living in London in, you know, the 80s, I, you know, I was very much more aware that a bomb could go off. And since then, we've had, you know, the 7-7 on the, the tube, which... Um, but uh, it's just that imminent threat. The explosion somehow seemed to be something I wanted to use in my work. And I didn't really want to use um, demolition people or special effects people to make an explosion. I wanted to use the British Army, A, that they were quite contentious at the time for various reasons, political reasons, and they were supposed to protect us, <laughs> not, you know, cause more trouble. Um, so the idea of them blowing up the garden shed, which is more like a safe haven, it's more of a domestic thing, you know, and things that we all knew and we were very familiar with, which is what I chose to stuff the shed with, all the kind of stuff that you normally find in sheds but uh, you know all the baggage somehow so the idea of them getting them to do an controlled explosion on a a garden shed full of stuff I thought was subversive at the time (laughs) and I think you literally got your hands on Semtex you know what was that like how did Semtex feel and smell like it felt like plasticine really because it's very inert unless you put a charge in it but I had it underneath my fingernails so when I was driving away from the army school of ammunition when we've been there just to have a demo and so I'd been modelling it 
of this demo and I we were driving back down the motorway with my curator and I thought well if we get stopped now by the police you know we, we could easily be arrested um, because we've got Semtex under our fingernails um, it could be a very Irish story <laughs> good <laughs> with a less than happy ending <laughs> Parker, we're here in one of the artworks in the Whitworth, in War Room, which I suppose is, is evocative of the poppy as this iconic symbol of, of so much of British war memory. Tell me about this piece and, and, and how you came to conceive of it. The War Museum asked me if I'd like to make to do a war commission for the, the commemoration of the First World War. And um, I went to visit the poppy factory in Richmond with the view to possibly doing something for them just as an exploring but the poppy I think is such a cliche it's something that I'd always avoided but I'd, for years I thought well how do they make them there must be some holes left when you, you take the poppy away and I'm always interested in factories and things being made so when I went to the factory in Richmond there was a machine quite an old machine that was chugging along punching out the poppies and making this big band of red paper full of holes and I thought, I really want to use that material and what to do with that material. It didn't work out for the War Museum because they had very particular times when they needed work to be made. But I thought, well, I really want to do this. And so I decided to create this installation, which is called War Room. And it's like a, almost like a giant campaign tent because the ceilings here are these lovely arched ceilings. And what I've done is inverted it to make a kind of tent-like roof. And then all the paper from the factory is suspended there's a double negative, so there's two layers of it. You know, they're hanging slightly away from the wall, so there's a kind of moire going on. And so the room is completely a red room, lit by four light bulbs in the middle. Uh, I originally had it lit from above. It had this top lighting, but I just put the other light bulbs in just in case that didn't work. And then when I saw it on with the lights on, I thought, no, this looks a bit like a village fete or something. <laughs> this just hasn't got the right mood, so got rid of those and just had the, the, the light bulbs. So you get this faint shadows going on on the walls. And, it, and as you work, walk around the space, these poppy-shaped holes shimmer and shift. And the, the people who are helping me install said they were feeling seasick. There's motion sickness. You get almost like a motion sickness. So it's, it's very destabilising. And it's suspended again. You know, it doesn't quite touch the floor. There's about 300,000 holes here. So that's a lot of men dead and it's like those regimented graveyards you get and I went down to Normandy to visit the graveyards when I was researching this piece and, and I wanted to have something about that regimentation but not be about the poppy but be about the absence of poppies it's almost a bit like where have all the flowers gone <laughs> they've all been picked one by one <laughs> yeah. it's certainly in a way almost a regimentation of memory and, and yet it, it, it does something else I mean there's this a theatricality there's a softness in this too somehow. Yes, I mean I think it's I just think, you know, I also made a film, a companion piece called War Machine, 
part of the, the piece too, really, which is I went to a different poppy factory in Aylesford, which is a totally mechanised poppy factory. So the one in Richmond is, is more for people to go and visit and say this is how poppies are made by hand. And But this other factory, it's totally mechanised and it makes 50, 60 million poppies rather than 1 million poppies. And it's a machine that never st- stops except for two weeks at Christmas. It produces poppies from 7 in the morning till 10 at night, day in, day out. And it has huge warehouses full of boxes of poppies. Very beautiful machines, circular machines that make these poppies. You know, it's a very thin ribbon of, of red that goes through um, the machine and a thin ribbon of green. And they get fed into these machines and, and they just punch out. And it's, it's completely mesmeric and deafening when you're there. So I decided to, to make a piece about a machine you couldn't turn off. And so it's called War Machine. And it, there's a m- m- moment in the film where the machine just judders to a halt. And the editing of the film just happened during the 100th anniversary, so I went down to the cenotaph for the Remember Sunday and took, took a, a friend of mine who's got good equipment and we recorded the sound of the two-minute silence. So there's little coughs and there's a big bend and the, the cannon going off and then there's people making shuffling sounds. And then this machine... The, the machines stop and start anyway because they get stuck, so you have to go and poke something in it to get them going again. So the machine started up again at the end of the two-minute silence, and it goes backwards just for a little brief moment, and then you go into the machinery again. So the, the title, uh, War Machine, is obviously a very evocative one. I suppose for so many people, the poppy is symbolic of remembrance of war, but also of the potential for peace, I mean, it's yes. and, and honouring the, the dead who fought. Um, why did you choose that particular title? Well, I think there is a level of uh, ambivalence there, because I do think this is a machine that won't switch off <laughs> and the commemoration won't stop you know, and it is a bit of a factory the army, that a navy and you know, young men and women hardly have left home or enticed into such a, um, a thing that we all obviously need too, we need an army and navy and air force and, and so there's a kind of sacrifice that goes on, a bloodletting it's almost pagan in a way that you have to sacrifice to get you life and you to carry on and move forward so, so I, this is almost kind of a you know, a bit chapel-like in here. I think this room could be war room means it's still active. It's not a commemoration as such. It's just a snapshot of the output of a factory over a certain length of time. You know, there'll be... The, the, the factory's churned out many more rooms since. It's you know, here you blink and it's a blink of red. It could be blood, it could be a yes. puppy. Yes. It's and maybe it's a memory of both. Thank you so much for talking to us. Well, thank you for talking to me.
Cornelia Parker's exhibition at the Whitworth Gallery in Manchester runs until the 31st of May. And further new artwork by Cornelia Parker that responds to the Magna Carta in the digital era runs at the British Library in London until the 24th of July. On next week's Arts Tonight, Irish art writer and memorist Brian Dillon on his new book, The Great Explosion. And as the inaugural Hoth Midsummer Literary Arts Festival is to be held in the historic Lutyens Library at Hoth Castle next month, we consider the architect and his Irish legacy. Join us then. Good night. Arts Tonight is presented by Vincent Woods and produced by Cleon and the Onloon.